Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank You for this Word that we have heard today in Your Scriptures that You have given to us. And we pray that You would make it to come and apply it to our hearts, that Your Spirit would be at work in us, that You would direct our thoughts, that You would direct our hearts, and that You would direct our actions, that we would always be pleasing to You, knowing that our pleasantness is found in Jesus Christ alone, through whom we pray. Amen. Well, as I said this morning, we have entered into the season of Lent. We've entered into this time of reflection, this time of repentance, this time of penitence, a time of fasting and prayer and almsgiving, all those things I've already said, and I'm sure many of us have heard that through our years of being in a liturgical church like our Anglican church here. But one of the things that I appreciate about Lent deeply is that call for self-reflection, for a healthy self-reflection. During my years in college, many, many years in college, I was given over to, I think, an extreme kind of introspection. Sometimes I call it a morbid introspection, this desire to analyze and understand each action that I make. Always asking the question, well, why did I do that? And if I did it for this reason, why was it that reason? And what about this other reason why I could have done it? I could have done it this way instead and had this result. Why, why, why? Always trying to strip away the layers. And I'll try to get at kind of the core reason why I might do something. Always going back and asking if I did the right thing over and over and over. And I think in many online discussions I've seen, in conversations I've had with many of you over the years, that all of us have been given over toward this morbid introspection at different times in our lives, especially coming from some parts of the evangelical Christian world. Some places specialize in that kind of morbid introspection without necessarily realizing they're weighing their people down with constantly confronting them with this need to analyze why they do something, to analyze their actions, to analyze their sins, and to try to get down underneath that sin and figure out what that desire is or this desire or what's driving this thing in order to try to cut it off. And thus undercutting aspects of what it means to repent, undercutting our own personal repentance, because then we feel like, well, if I keep struggling with such and such sin and such and such desire that's wrong, then have I really repented? Have I turned from God if I haven't fully, absolutely, totally cut myself off from it? That's where morbid introspection will often lead us. It'll lead us into a total despair. This total despair that we have done anything that God desires of us. A total despair that God would have anything to do with us sinful creatures. A total despair that the most basic things, such as just simply trusting Jesus has not been done in our lives because we haven't trusted for the right reason or we haven't trusted in the right way or we haven't trusted at the right moment. We get caught up in that feedback loop. And that morbid introspection drives us into deeper and deeper despair. Now the reason that I like Lent is it gives us guardrails in that regard because we are called to self-reflection. We are called to introspect within, to look within and analyze ourselves some, However, we're not called to do it in a morbid kind of way to cause us to 
question our salvation in every way. Introspection is good and healthy. It allows us to step back and recognize where we are erring, where we are committing sin, where we are failing in the things that God has called us to do. But with the right type of introspection, we're doing it on the foundation that we have laid in Jesus Christ, that the Father has laid in us. That regardless of the sins that we commit, we have forgiveness in Jesus. And thus we can begin turning from those sins, little by little turning away from them, finding healing in Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. He empowers us to begin walking that path. As we have heard the law of God proclaimed this day, as I read the commandments and we responded with Lord have mercy and incline our hearts to keep this law. We are being confronted with the conviction of the law. That we hear the law and it should convict us. It should cause us to desire God's mercy knowing that we have broken that law in some way. But the law also gives us a guide. It shows us what is not pleasing to God in order that we might better know what is pleasing to God and begin to look toward that. And the Spirit empowers us to see that. To see that conviction and to see that direction that we can go. And so Lent invites us into that time of reflection with the law. Of reflection to see our need for Jesus more deeply. That when we reflect, we should not be driven from Christ because we see sin. We should be driven to Christ because we see sin. And it's because Jesus is the center of our salvation. He is the one who accomplishes our salvation for us. And on this day, this first Sunday of Lent, we go and see the temptation of Christ. We see Him and hear of Him being tempted in the wilderness, in that desert beyond the Jordan, being taken away from the people, having been baptized, the Spirit descending and sending Him forth, that He would accomplish our salvation, that He would work our salvation for us. And this is the first stepping stone. This is the first stone in His ministry to be tempted by Satan. And so we begin there with that baptism of Jesus once more, just as we did there in the first Sunday of, Lent, of Epiphany, hearing of the baptism. We get to hear about it again now in connection to His temptation. And in that baptism, the Spirit comes to Jesus. And with the descent of the Spirit, we then see Jesus driven into the wilderness that He might begin our deliverance from temptation and sin. The Spirit descends, the Spirit drives, and thus Jesus becomes our deliverer from temptation and sin. And so first, let's hear about this descent of the Spirit and what it means. There in verse 9 of chapter 1 of Mark, it says that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. The Spirit comes to Jesus at His baptism, inaugurating Him, marking Him, setting Him apart in the fullest sense you can think of to be the Messiah. Isaiah 61 speaks of the Spirit coming and dwelling and resting on the Messiah, on the Chosen One, the suffering servant of God, the redemptive servant of God, receives the Spirit on behalf of the people. And He is declared to be the Beloved Son, the One in whom God is truly well pleased. The Spirit comes and marks Jesus. He descends upon Him, showing to Jesus and John 
that Jesus is truly the Messiah. He is truly the Son of God. He is truly the one God has sent to earth to deal with our sin. And I came across this quote from John Chrysostom where he said, Therefore the dove also appears not bearing an olive branch, but pointing out to us our deliverer from all evils and suggesting gracious hopes. You see, there's another place in Scripture where the dove shows up. It's when the water was, when the earth was still covered with the waters of the flood. Moses sent out the dove to see if the floods were receding, if the waters were receding. And the last one that he sent came back with a simple olive branch in its beak to show that there is growth upon the earth, which means that there are trees being revealed, which means that the waters must be drying up and the land is beginning to dry up. And thus, plant life was growing once more. And so that dove brought an olive branch back. And so we see that as that dove brought that olive branch to Noah, which comes to us as olive branches now representing peace, the dove descends upon the true branch that grants us true peace with the Father through His own death and resurrection. That dove proclaimed peace to Noah in the Old Testament, and now the dove proclaims peace to us by coming upon Jesus, the Spirit descending on Jesus in the form of a dove, reminding us that peace is found in this one Messiah. That this one Messiah is receiving the Spirit for us. That we would have the Spirit, that we would be filled with the Spirit, that we would be empowered by the Spirit, that we would be marked and set apart from the rest of the world by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit with us. Jesus receives that Holy Spirit for us so that we can then be empowered to do what God calls us to do. But immediately Mark tells us that that Spirit descends upon Jesus. Jesus is driven into the wilderness. There in verse 12 it says, The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. So much is happening in this moment, that driving of the Spirit, that guiding of the Spirit, the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. What we see here is a reversal of the people of Israel coming into the land. They came from the wilderness through the Jordan into the land. And here Jesus goes from the land into the Jordan to be baptized, to be marked and set apart by the Spirit, and then He goes into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. He goes out into those desert regions. The wilderness isn't like what we have here in America, where we think of trees and shrubs and bushes and mountains that are covered in greenery. The wilderness in the Middle East, especially in Israel, is barren places where there's hardly anything growing. Where there are just little sprigs of a bush maybe sticking up out of the ground. Little plants here and there. And the shepherds would guide their sheep through the wilderness finding those little sprigs for the sheep to eat. This is a barren and dry land where there is virtually no life. And that is where Jesus is driven to by the Spirit. The Spirit leads Him out for 40 days into this desert region of death and decay. There for 40 days he is being tempted by Satan. And of course we hear that 40 and we recognize that there is a lot packed into that number. There's a lot of symbolism throughout the Old Testament and the whole Bible dealing with that number 40. There are 40 days of rain upon the earth regarding the flood. Twice Moses went up to Mount Sinai for 40 days to receive the law from God. 
The spies are in Cana, Canaan, examining the land for 40 days. 40 days for Elijah to travel to Horeb. There are 40 years of Moses as a shepherd there in the wilderness before he goes back to Egypt, before God calls him to Egypt to lead his people. And then the people spend 40 years in the desert after they refuse to enter the land the first time. Many of the judges ruled for 40 years. The kings, Saul, David, and Solomon each ruled for 40 years. Jonah even preached in Nineveh for 40 days. And here we see Jesus in the desert for 40 days. 40, 40, 40, constantly. And of course, Jesus going into the desert for 40 days is representative, I think, primarily of Israel in the desert for 40 years. Israel wandered the desert for 40 years because of their sin, because of their refusal to go into the land. And so in a way to undo that, to undo that sin of Israel refusing to enter the land and being sent into the desert for 40 years, Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days to be tempted, to be taunted, to be mocked by Satan. That He might resist Satan and then enter triumphantly back into the land. Many of the meanings surrounding this number 40 could be growth and nourishment, preparation, testing, transformation and renewal. The number 40, when we see it linked to so many different kinds of events in Scripture like that, directs us to the work of God in preparing the hearts of His people and working us through transformation and bringing us renewal and growing us and nourishing us with His very Word. So likewise, Jesus is out in the desert for 40 days on our behalf, on behalf of Israel, to undo the sin of Israel and to undo the sin of Adam, to begin that undoing of it. At the cross, He ultimately deals with it, but here at the temptation, He begins in a drastic way to deal with it. He begins dealing decisively with it because He goes out to be tempted. And this means that we have to consider the nature of temptation as Jesus has been driven into the desert. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is something that comes from outside of us, that entices us toward wrongful desires. Temptation is from without, while sinful desires come from within. Temptation comes from another source that is not ourselves. We sometimes hear that phrase, you're tempting yourself. I might tempt myself in that sense by placing myself in a situation where there are things that are trying to entice me. But that's still something different from me trying to lead me into sin. So it's not quite right that I'm tempting to say I'm tempting myself or you're tempting yourself. But there's that sense in there of you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation where there are things that will entice you away from the Lord. Thus, temptation is not sin, but it's a harbinger of sin. Temptation is a situation that Satan will use to rouse us into desires to sin. Temptations arise out of the world around us, and they can lead to sinful desires that manifest in outward sin. And that's why temptation is so dangerous, especially for us who have a fallen human nature. It's dangerous because it can create desires that are sinful. It can lead us to bring forth desires that are sinful. But the desires that can be created by temptation, while it can be sinful, sometimes they are not desires to sin. 
Sometimes they don't go against God's holy law. And so therefore, not all desire within is wrong. But sinful desire within is wrong. And temptation, when it comes from Satan like that, is trying to stir up those wrongful desires. Trying to stir up a desire that might be good in a certain situation. But then our sinful nature will warp that desire and turn it into a wrong kind of desire. And that's where we want to remember that those wrongful inclinations is something that theology has called concupiscence. It's a fancy theology word that's been used throughout the church in the old King James. It got used multiple times to speak of that sinful tendency of our natures to desire that which is forbidden. Concupiscence is that desire to want what God has forbidden. Think of when you see the sign that says, don't walk on this grass. That's a type of temptation. It's a commandment that says, don't do this thing. But it also acts as a temptation to disobedience. We can ignore it if we want to and go on with our days. But concupiscence within grabs hold of that sign and the temptation. And it creates that desire to resist the command. To resist and go walking on the grass. To disobey what the sign is commanding us to do. That's what concupiscence does. It's that inclination to do that which is wrong. To turn against God's commandments when faced with temptation. But again, desire itself is not sin. There is good desire within. And sometimes that makes it hard to distinguish where the line is between good desire and bad desire. That's something we each have to figure out on our own to better understand where our desires are. Because there's many good desires within, just a few. Our desire to eat to satisfy hunger is a good thing. Our desire for good companionship, a desire for good relations of a wife toward her husband or a husband toward his wife. Those are good things in our lives. Those are good desires to have that flow out of God working in us, that flow out of us not tending towards sin in those moments. But however, concupiscence will corrupt those desires. It turns them inward toward ourselves. Think of that desire for good food is no longer about satisfying hunger, but becomes gluttonous. It just wants more and more and more to feel better. Desire for companionship can turn into a desire to control the other person for our own benefit. The desire for good relations between a husband and wife can become corrupted by unmet wants that aren't good for the relationship. St. Augustine called this the privation of the good. That there can be a good desire, but sin corrupts it. Concupiscence leads us to desire in the wrong way. And thus we turn or use that desire for our own benefit. And so Jesus is tempted in the desert for us. Temptation is not sinful. Temptation is something that happens in this broken world. And so Jesus endures that temptation. Temptation can lead to sin, but does not have to lead to sin. And Jesus shows us that it does not have to lead to sin by resisting Satan. Jesus does what no man before Him had truly done before. Jesus said no. Jesus has no concupiscence to be quick to corrupt the temptations, to be quick to corrupt the desires in Jesus. He doesn't have a fallen human nature. Though He is fully man, He does not have that brokenness within And so Jesus, in one sense, has a leg up on us because He doesn't have a sinful nature to deal with, but He has everything standing against Him. He's in the desert for 40 days fasting. 
Think of Adam in the garden. He has all the food around him to eat, to partake of, and yet he chooses sin. He gives in to Satan's temptation to eat the fruit. Jesus has everything standing against him in that moment. And yet he refused to follow temptation. He refuses to follow it where it leads. He does what no one truly has done. He does not allow the temptation to create wrongful desire, to lead to wrongful desire. And we can't fully understand what happened with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden when they were tempted. We don't know because we know that they didn't have concupiscence at that time. They were not sinners. And yet they fell to temptation. Satan created to them a desire to pursue knowledge in the wrong way. God had said, do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent's suggestion was to gain knowledge in a forbidden way. (coughs) Satan suggested that God wanted to withhold knowledge from them. But the reality is that they could gain knowledge by obeying God, by following the path God set before them, and He would reveal to them, I believe, the difference between good and evil. And they would pursue it by desiring the good, by chasing after the good, by doing the good. But Satan put the thought in their minds and the temptation before them of doing that which God told them not to do. And here Satan does the same thing to Jesus. He tries to put the thought in Jesus' head that he should abandon God's calling, that he should go about doing things his own way, that he should follow Satan instead of God. In the Gospels of St. Matthew and St. Luke, they go into detail of three of the temptations that Jesus endured. The hunger being turned into desire to simply turn stones into bread and to ignore God's Word. The desire to be seen by all by casting oneself off the pinnacle, knowing that God would rescue him from falling from the temple. The desire to have all the nations of the world by bowing down to Satan and avoiding the cross. Satan tempts Jesus to pursue a different pathway than what God has called him to as the true Son of God. But Jesus resists. Jesus says no. Jesus does that which we are incapable of in ourselves to consistently do. We might resist a temptation here and there, but to live a life of continually resisting temptation, of not letting desires become corrupted, we cannot do. But Jesus does it for us. Jesus fulfills that which we lack in ourselves. And that's why He came to do that which we are unable to do. And that's what He is demonstrating here in the desert, here in these 40 days of temptation. But that's how Mark says it, that He was in the desert 40 days being tempted. That in some sense, over the course of those 40 days of fasting that Jesus is in the desert, there is temptation happening to Him, culminating in those three temptations we hear about in Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke. That is a perfectly ordinary way to interpret it. The other Gospels don't say Jesus was only tempted in those ways. And we know that Satan left Jesus after those temptations to think of, to find another opportunity to tempt Him. And so throughout Jesus' days after that, He is being tempted in various ways. But Jesus consistently says no to temptation. He says no to wrongful desires being created in Him. He says no to disobeying God's will for you and for me, for all people, for all mankind. And thus, because He says no after being driven into the wilderness, He brings deliverance to us. 
He brings rest. He brings peace. He brings comfort to His people by resisting temptation and sin for us. And He pours out His Spirit upon us that we would grow and learn to resist sin and temptation. We're not expected to go from zero to a thousand instantaneously to suddenly be able to resist every sin and temptation that comes into our path after we receive the Spirit. But God is working in us to deliver us from those temptations, to deliver us from those sins little by little, to give us that strength as we follow, as we listen, as we pursue God through His Word, through prayer, through sacraments, through disciplining our bodies, through resisting sin more and more. As you discover your resistance to sin increases as you strive to resist sin. When you find yourself giving in to sin over and over and over, giving in to one sin after another, you find that your muscles to resist become weaker and weaker. But Jesus delivers us from that weakness and begins to strengthen us with His Spirit. He delivers us from our sin in order that we could then walk a new path that has a path of transformation because transformation has come to us. Our actions aren't necessarily transforming us. Our actions are flowing out of a complete transformation that has occurred. And our actions themselves are changing. And so our actions are getting transformed, but we ourselves are not being properly transformed by doing good deeds, by pursuing God's commandments. Because the transformation has already occurred within. The transformation occurred beginning at our baptism with the descent of the Spirit upon us. Just as He came to Jesus, He comes to us and begins working in us, begins guiding us, begins enlightening our hearts and our minds as we hear more and more of the Word and the Word is poured into us as it was poured upon us at our baptisms. We grow and discover more and more deliverance. We discover that God has worked a transformation in us that we could never do. And so He sends us forth in that deliverance, in that transformation, in that renewal to know Him more deeply, to make Him known through what we do. And so Jesus was called into the desert. He was called to have the Spirit descend upon Him and driven by the Spirit into that desert region that we would know deliverance through Jesus. Because He desires to deliver us from our sin. He desires to deliver us from what we are in and of ourselves. To renew our desires. To push away the concupiscence. To push away the sinful nature. To push away the sinful desires that would lead us to commit outward sin. And He does that because He is the one who received the Spirit for us. And He does it for us because He is the one who resists Satan for us. And gives us the strength to now live in that resistance. To be strengthened by the Spirit over and over. To be strengthened through the Word. Through remembering our baptism. Through receiving the sacrament of His body and blood here at the altar. That Jesus comes and meets us and renews us and strengthens us to go forth. Because He has accomplished it for us. Beginning here with the temptation. And then continuing throughout His ministry leading to the cross where He will bear the sins of the world. Where He will bear your sins. Where He will bear my sins to undo them, to put them away, to remove them from before the Father, that forgiveness would outflow from that cross to us and that we would be made right by God's transformation of us, declaring us righteous in Jesus, declaring us not guilty, declaring us not sinners in Jesus, that we would then be strengthened to resist that sin that can come from within, to resist the temptations from without, that we can go forward trusting in Christ more and more.
And so this Lent, let us cling to the cross of Christ. Let us cling to the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Let us cling to the work of Christ on our behalf. That we would grow, that we would be changed more and more, that we would walk in the renewal that we have been given through the deliverance of Jesus from temptation and sin. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.